Well, good morning. We are excited to have Carolyn Custis James with us this morning to teach us the word. Uh, she's taught the last couple days at the women's conference, 300 women in this room, and I got to hear a lot of her teaching, and it was just excellent. So I'm excited what she'll bring for us this morning as a body gathered together. Carolyn has had a groundbreaking ministry throughout the Christian world of encouraging women to use their gifts to the fullest for the kingdom of God and encouraging men and women to work together for the kingdom. So it's exciting to have her here. I was first exposed to Carolyn by reading her book a few years ago, The Gospel of Ruth. And I remember as reading that thinking, you know, this woman has an incredible understanding of the book of Ruth, and she has an incredible understanding of the gospel. So I'm excited what she will bring for us today. Carolyn, please come teach us. Let's welcome her, shall we? Well, good morning. It's still morning, is it? Well, it it has been a wonderful weekend, and I have loved being with the women of Cole. You have some incredible women here, and um, you're a very blessed congregation in many, many ways. Um, I visit a lot of different churches, and um, I'm very inclined to stay. (laughs) Not the the church and also the weather. You know, we've we've really been... I came from Pennsylvania, and yeah... And actually, the year before that, we were living in the Boston area, so I missed a nine-foot year of snow by not living there anymore. But anyway, um, one of the things that we talked about this um, weekend is is a matter of real uh, concern to me and to uh, should be to all of us. And um, that is the fact that there's a chapter missing in the Bible. Here's what I mean. When you open the Bible and begin reading on page one, you see God in creative mode. Um, He is calling into being a spectacular creation. And um, I always hope that they have recordings of this when we get to heaven, because I would love to see how this all worked. But, um, you know, God is is a gracious and good God who is an artist and who has embedded this planet with all sorts of treasure that the human race has spent all history unpacking and and developing and cultivating. I mean, when you look around the room, everything you see here has been mined from the earth. And God creates his image bearers, male and female, and commissions them together to be his A-team to get the job done of of, um, building his kingdom on earth. He's launching this kingdom. And um, he creates male and female to be a blessed alliance to do this together. And even underscores the fact that men and women need each other when he says it's not good for the man to be alone. And he creates the woman to come alongside him and join him in this grand enterprise that God has commissioned us to do. But before we have a chance to witness a single moment of unfallen image-bearer living. Before we get to see male and female forge this blessed alliance and serve God together in the world, an enemy invades. 
God's image bearers rebel. They are cut off from God and divided from each other, and a terrible darkness descends over the planet. And we are left to sort through the ruins to try to figure out what it is God had in mind for us from the beginning. And how we are to live as as his image bearers. How we are to reflect in the world who he is. Not only individually, but by how we work together. And here's the problem. Jesus calls us to a kingdom that is not of this world. Not a kinder, gentler way the world does things. But a kingdom that is a radically different gospel way of doing things. That's true to Jesus and utterly foreign to the world. And foreign to us too. Here is the problem that we face in our gender embattled world. Where male-female relationships sink to appalling lows. And where even in the body of Christ we have our struggles over how or whether to work together as male and female. We need that missing chapter. We too easily settle for less than what God calls us to be and do. Jesus is the missing chapter. He shows us what it is to be the true image bearer of the living God. He is the perfect reflection of who God is in the world. And Jesus' gospel is the power of God. To everyone who believes, reuniting God's image bearers with their creator, but also with one another. If you're like me, you need more stories to help you understand what this is all about and for it to really sink in. And God has given us lots of stories. One of the strongest examples that I have found in all of scripture beyond Jesus is in the Old Testament book of Ruth. Traditional interpretations of this beloved book have thrown us off the deeper meaning of of the story here in in this very much beloved book. We're taught that it's a romance between the beautiful Ruth and the handsome, strapping, rich Boaz. And really, all three characters in the story are cheated of who they really are and the extraordinary example they give us. All three of them lose under this, this interpretation. You know, we're told that you know, Ruth goes out to glean to, to feed herself and her mother-in-law, and she ends up miraculously in the field of Boaz. And as she's there in the field gleaning looking picture perfect, this beautiful young girl. You know, Boaz shows up, and he is a hunk. And then he sees her, and their eyes lock. It's love at first sight, right? They fall in love, and she proposes marriage. Write that down in your notes, ladies. (laughs) And he accepts, and they get married And she has a baby boy, and it's the perfect Cinderella story, right? They all live happily ever after. And the scene closes with the doting Naomi holding this beautiful little baby boy. But you know, the Bible isn't teaching fairy tales. The Bible is for the real world where you and I live. 
the real world where we are broken and our stories aren't, aren't happily ever after stories. To get to the heart of the story, we must remind ourselves of some important things. And we need to do this every time we open God's word. And the first thing is we need to tell ourselves that this is God's story. That God is the hero of the story. That every story in the Bible is about him and it's teaching us who he is and what his heart is for the world. And so the first objective that we have when we read the book of Ruth is to learn what it's teaching us about God. But the other thing that we need to remind ourselves about is that when we, as Americans, read the Bible, we are reading a foreign book. It's not an American book. It's not a Western book. It, it comes out of a culture that is as far removed from us as you can possibly be in today's world. It comes from an ancient Middle Eastern patriarchal culture. And in order to understand the power of the message, we need to understand this backdrop to the story. Patriarchy is the backdrop. It contrasts with the gospel in powerful ways that we just don't see when we only look at the Bible through an American lens. And the wonderful thing is that in today's world, there are plenty of people who can help us understand this backdrop of the Bible. Patriarchy is the backdrop. It is not the message of the Bible. And we often confuse that. But the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz takes place in a, in a full-fledged patriarchal culture. It is a world where sons are prized and daughters don't count. It is a world like the world that Malala lives in where they don't want to educate girls. Why would you educate girls? They just need to make sons. They just need to have babies. That's what they need to do. It's a world where a woman's value is determined by her relationships with men. You know, who is her father and who is her husband? And above all, how many sons does she have? You can measure a woman's value by counting her sons. I heard the story of a a Jordanian man who married an American woman, and they moved to live in the West. And their first three children were all daughters. And he was thrilled with his little girls. But it took him forever to pick up the phone and call his parents in Jordan and tell them that they had another granddaughter. Child number four was a boy. And he grabbed the phone and he called his parents. And his mother made that high-pitched, trilling noise to celebrate the news that at last there was a son in the family. It is within that story that we find Naomi's sinking to ground zero of her life. The first five verses of the book of Ruth absolutely wipe her out. She goes through a famine and her family leave Bethlehem and flee to Moab, today's Jordan, to escape the famine and to survive. But when they get there, death is meeting them. Her husband dies and she is widowed. But Naomi has double insurance because she has two sons. And those two boys marry pagan girls. It is a nightmare for Naomi, but it doesn't stop there. For 10 years, 
There is not a single pregnancy for either girl. And then the tragedy worsens, for Naomi loses both of her sons. And the killer verse in her story is the word that says Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. This is not a Cinderella story. This is the story of a female Job. And Naomi reminds us that God is the central figure in this story. In patriarchal cultures, women are among the most at risk. The violence and wars in the Middle East have been multiplying widows. And the tragedy plays out again and again and again especially for a woman who is beyond childbearing years, as Naomi was. There's no future for her. She won't start over again. She's toast. She's finished. The cry that is heard from her in the aftermath is not overkill. Naomi says, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. She believes that she has lost God's hesed. It is the bedrock of God's people. It is his loyal covenant love. It is the love he gives voluntarily to his people. And it is costly and sacrificial. And it doesn't stop. But she believes it's lost for her. Anyone in that, in that generation, in that patriarchal world, who read the first five verses of the book of Ruth would tell you, The story is over. There are no men in the story. There's nothing left to tell. Two women who are zeros. A widow who is past childbearing years. And a young widow who is certifiably barren after 10 years of infertility. And if you were to ask Naomi and Ruth, they would agree with that. They would say, this story is over. And amazingly, this is where the biblical camera zooms in on these two women. The world would count out. The world would say are zeros. And the biblical story begins. The real story. The story of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Lest we romanticize the world of Naomi and Ruth, and the dangers that they faced. Let us not forget that in our own scripture, we read stories like the one where Lot was prepared to turn his daughters over to an enraged mob of sexual predators. That Hagar's reproductive organs were commandeered by Abraham and Sarah. That Laban plays chess with Jacob and uses his two daughters and two slave girls as pawns. Brutality enrages the outrage of God and his prophets. Isaiah writes, Woe to those who deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. This is the world of Naomi and Ruth, and they are instantly at risk without a male in their family to defend and protect them. Anyone can exploit or abuse them with impunity, for there will not be a man they have to face. Protections that we as women in in this world assume for ourselves 
are absolutely missing for both of them. And none of this is lost on Ruth. She has witnessed the collapse of Naomi's world. She too is swept away in the tsunami of suffering. She hears Naomi's anger. She sees her despair. She knows that all of this has happened to Naomi without a whisper of intervention from her God. And she feels the brunt of evidence against Yahweh. And Ruth is a sufferer too. We forget that. But she's a widow. After 10 years of barrenness, they would all give up on her. There's no e-harmony match ahead for this young woman. She's missing the number one criteria that any respectable man would be looking for in a wife. He must have sons. The best prospect for Ruth is that she might be taken in in a polygamous situation as wife number three or four and an extra pair of hands to help out with the others. She understands the realities they face. And she's young. The road of suffering and poverty and vulnerability ahead for her is a longer road than the road Naomi faces, especially as an immigrant in Bethlehem. And she's not a fool. The smartest thing for her to do is to turn around and go back to Moab, go back to her homeland, to her family. And Naomi is ordering her to go back. Go back to your people and to your gods. When a Job story is playing out, when circumstances are as black as can be, when the evangelist on duty is pushing her away, when humanly speaking, everything repels against all odds, Ruth embraces Naomi's God. Devotion to Naomi cannot explain what happens here. This is the power of the gospel. Even at her lowest, Naomi is a light bearer. When you've lived in the darkness that Ruth has lived in, even the slightest flicker of light will draw you. She is drawn. Who would guess that God would use a desperate flight to Moab to rescue a young pagan girl whose father married her off to a famine refugee, or that the evangelist to reel her in would be a woman the world counted out, a woman the world discarded as worthless. This is the power of the gospel. The gospel rescues and reconnects God's image bearer with her creator. It is a pivotal moment in Ruth's life. Her center of gravity has changed forever. She is Yahweh's child now. That defines who she is and how she will live. And she is determined to live as one. The girl who arrives in Bethlehem is not the same girl as the one who left Moab. She is counted out by the culture for all sorts of reasons, but she is not counted out by God. There are battles to fight, difficult battles. Hunger is waiting on the doorstep when they arrive. 
and the family is dying out, for there are no sons. It is a terrible calamity in the ancient world for a man to die without sons to carry on his name and his lineage. It is a calamity for the man and it is a calamity for his wife. It is the worst possible outcome. And for Ruth to do anything about this will require boldness on her part and it will call her to move out of her comfort zone for the sake of Naomi and her family. And it will mean making radical proposals to a very powerful man. The power of the gospel is a rescuing power. But it doesn't stop there. It transforms and it transforms Ruth and it will go on to transform Naomi and Boaz as well. But the gospel doesn't stop there. The gospel unites God's sons and daughters into a potent kingdom force. Three characters are in this story. Three main characters. And they are unlikely allies. They are as unlikely to align in in a blessed alliance as any three people could possibly be. We have Naomi, who is Ruth's mother-in-law. And Boaz, who is a very powerful figure in the community. The two of them are native-born Israelites. They have grown up in this world. They know the Mosaic law and they know the ways of God. They are light years ahead of Ruth, who is a brand new believer. They are seasoned believers. They're, they are of, of the same generation. They both speak of Ruth as my daughter. For Naomi, time is running out. There is no future for her. There is no starting again for her. She is going home to run out the clock. She is going home to die. She is finished. And Boaz holds all the cards in this story. When he steps out onto the pages of scripture, he is a tall figure. He is a man of enormous power. He's male, after all, in a world that gives primacy to men. He is a man to be admired for all the right reasons. Boaz is a great man on the pages of scripture, but we have grossly underestimated his greatness as a man. He's a man introduced as a valorous man. He could well have been a military hero. He has power, wealth, and pedigree. He is in impeccable compliance with Mosaic law. A Palestinian man in recent years was married and his wife gave birth to their first child, which was a daughter. And then she had physical problems and was unable to conceive again. And he was desperate. He said, I am nothing in this village without a son. And that leads me to believe that Boaz, as an older man, had sons. That he would not be a man of stature and power in the community if he didn't have sons. If he had been hanging out and neglecting his responsibility to his family, I believe he had sons. He's born to a prominent family in Israel and he is culturally empowered to lead and he has lived the kind of life that has earned him the respect of the community. And he and Naomi live at polar ends of the social spectrum. And then 
we have Ruth. Everything on Ruth's resume is a negative. And yet she is the gutsy risk taker, initiator of the action in this story. If we were to look at her in today's world, you know, Moab is Jordan. And so according to to today's demographic, she's an Arab. Isn't it amazing? We have a book of the Bible that's not only named for a woman, but it's named for a woman who comes from an Arab country. So look at her resume. She's female. Already, that's a negative. She's an immigrant. She's young. She's poor. She's a novice to the faith. She's marginalized in every possible way, and she's out scavenging in the field to try to get scraps to be able to feed her mother-in-law. But none of that matters now. She's a child of God, and that is what defines her and mobilizes her to act. And God will work through Ruth to change the lives of Naomi and Boaz. And together, the three of them will change the course of history. Ruth impacts Boaz. She has the audacity to challenge his interpretation of Mosaic law. Three of them that she challenges. But Ruth lives on the hungry side of the law. She's a person that the law is designed to help And the law reads very differently from that vantage point. And she moves Boaz from the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. The letter of the law says to landowners, let them glean, let the poor come, and let them pick up whatever's left after you have harvested your crops. The letter of the law. But the spirit of the law says, feed them. The letter of the law says family responsibility falls on the shoulders of a blood brother and the nearest relative of a man. And Boaz is neither. It is with reference that these laws are to a man who dies without a male heir. And that blood brother is to marry the widow and raise up a son to take that man's Legacy and his inheritance and his land. And the, and the kinsman redeemer law has to do with the land when, when a brother or a near relative falls on hard times. And Boaz is neither a blood brother of Elimelech or the nearest relative. So he's beyond the claims of the law on him. But he's not beyond the spirit. Of the law. The letter of the law says family responsibility falls on a blood brother and the nearest relative, but the spirit of the law says God's people are called to love and sacrifice for one another. And Boaz discovers through his interaction with Ruth that there are infinite possibilities for ways to be living in obedience to God. And she impacts Naomi. When Naomi is on the road back to Bethlehem, and she is feeling abandoned and forsaken. She is held in the human embrace of her daughter-in-law, and she is hearing words of covenant love spoken to her by Ruth. Stop asking me to leave you. I will never leave you. And Ruth is speaking for God 
when she says those words. And when Naomi is waiting in the house while Ruth is out gleaning in the field and she is fearful of what is happening to her daughter-in-law and believing the worst, Ruth comes home not with bruises and tears and stories of rape. She comes home lugging 29 pounds of winnowed barley. It would take a male harvester, a paid male harvester, at least half a month to bring home that much grain for his pay. And Ruth has done it in a single day. And when Naomi sees this load of grain in her despair that God has forsaken her, she sees physical evidence that he has not forgotten her. It is amazing that it happens to all of us when the lights go out in our stories and we, and we are fearful that God has abandoned us or turned against us, that we strain our eyes in the darkness for the slightest evidence of his presence. And Naomi is revived in her faith in God by something as mundane and ordinary as a load of grain. And she is mobilized for God's kingdom. The gospel's power destroys the dividing walls between God's sons and daughters. This is what we are told in the New Testament. That Christ himself has made peace. And he has done a job of demolition on walls that divide us. And it is an amazing story when the three of them come together in this third chapter of the book of Ruth. And it is the story that the part of the story that takes place at the threshing floor. And the combinations that come together are the kinds of explosive combinations that we read about all the time in the news. It's male and female. It's powerful and powerless, valued and discarded native-born and immigrant, rich and poor, Jew and Arab, nitro and glycerin. But instead of the explosion that we would anticipate with those combinations, we find at the threshing floor one of the most powerful displays of the gospel of Jesus Christ that shows up anywhere on the pages of Scripture. It is an absolutely extraordinary story, and all three of them step up to display Hesed for others. They are all three making enormous sacrifices. And let me just give you a piece of what goes on here. When we hear what happens with this kinsman-redeemer law, it is a law that says that if a man's relative falls on hard times, he is supposed to buy that man's property that he's had to sell or that is, is, is not being developed any longer. And it is a high risk. And so what happens here is this law comes into play as, along with the Leverett law. Ruth is, is coming to Boaz on family business. And it happens at the threshing floor. And he will be completely blown away by by what happens here. Naomi has been reassured of God's love for her. And so she begins to be concerned about Ruth. She comes out of herself, out of her grief, out of her despair and her depression and her self-absorption 
to think about her daughter-in-law who by all prospects will outlive Naomi. And Naomi is fearful of what will happen to her after she dies. And so she seeks a husband for her so that Ruth will come under the protective umbrella of a man, which is what a woman desperately needs in a patriarchal world. She's looking for a husband. She's not looking for a baby. A woman who's gone through 10 years of infertility with her daughter-in-law would not be so cruel. She just wants her to be taken in. And she hopes that Boaz will be willing. It is the widow's might. Ruth is all she has. And she is giving her up. But Ruth has vowed to care for her mother-in-law. She's not about to go out and seek a husband for herself. And so she comes to Boaz with a completely different agenda. She's not there to propose marriage so she can have the man that she's in love with. This is about family business. This is about Naomi and Elimelech and sacrifice on Ruth's part. And in an act of staggering faith, she proposes marriage to Boaz and volunteers to give birth to a son to rescue the family of Elimelech. And when we find Boaz, he's at the threshing floor. He's endured a famine, and at last he's having a good return on investment for his harvest. And he's guarding what belongs to him. And here comes Ruth, and she throws the book at him. And he is overwhelmed by the display of Hesed for her mother-in-law. And he blesses her for what she's doing, and he totally gets what she's doing. But there is a nearer kinsman, and that nearer kinsman spells out the risks of what Ruth has proposed to Boaz. And let me just explain the part that has to do with the kinsman-redeemer law. Do a little kinsman-redeemer accounting, which the nearer kinsman was doing. What happens under the kinsman-redeemer law, is that you have two relatives, two relatives who each have their property, their estate. And one of the two falls on hard times. And so his property is diminished. You can go to the next slide. So what the kinsman-redeemer law requires is for that relative who is the nearest to him to take from his own estate and invest in his in his struggling relative's property. And so the outcome of this is that the, the relative that he's invested in gets back in business, gets back, his, he flourishes again. And the one who's made the investment is diminished. So if she gives birth to a son, the relative who is invested in her property is, is losing. And his own sons will inherit less. Because he's poured himself into the other. If she doesn't have a son, he stands to double his wealth. Because he'll have both properties now. So it's a high stakes gamble. And the nearer relative is, is not willing to take the risk. And he's a smart man for doing that. And anybody looking at it would, would approve of what his decision was. 
And so, you know, this is, this is what takes place when, when Boaz steps up. And Boaz agrees to do what Ruth has proposed. And he takes her as his wife. The gospel is the power of God. And it shows itself in how this story plays out. So Ruth gives up her daughter-in-law. I mean, Naomi gives up her daughter-in-law. Ruth gives up herself. She sacrifices herself for, to save the family. And Boaz sacrifices his wealth on behalf, all to rescue Elimelech and the family. And then Ruth makes the ultimate sacrifice because God is in this story and he blesses her with a son. And she gives her baby to Naomi. And the women celebrate that, in, that Naomi, empty Naomi, has a son. And God redeploys Naomi to raise this little boy on the theology she learned in the school of suffering. This little boy will go on to become the grandfather of King David. And the line that they are rescuing is the line of Jesus the Messiah. They never knew how God used what they did in local family problems to advance his kingdom for the world. It is an amazing story. The gospel is the power of God to rescue against impossible odds, to transform us into the new people he has come to restore, the people he envisioned before that missing chapter. We can become the missing chapter in the world. And the gospel is the power to unite God's sons and daughters in in a blessed alliance that advances his kingdom in every place on the planet. When I read this story, I am blown away every single time at what I'm seeing. The power of the gospel in the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz in the Old Testament. Each one of them needs the other two. They are more powerful together than they ever could have been on their own. And God's kingdom advances because they join forces to address local family problems and make sacrifices for one another. It stretches my expectations of what the gospel will do in and through me. It keeps me going when someone I love seems beyond hope of the gospel. It gives me hope that despite the fall, and the fall is worse than we ever imagined, Despite the fall, God's kingdom strategy remains unchanged. He has never given up on what he envisioned in the beginning. He is still in the business of forging strong alliances between his brothers, his daughters, and his sons. And when that happens, when these alliances are forged for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the world will know that Jesus has come and that his kingdom is not of this world. As we move forward into the 21st century, into the next chapter of our own stories, into a world that's every bit as broken as Naomi's world was, into a night as black as it was for Ruth in Moab, 
to hear the same radical call of God that Boaz heard, to listen, to learn, to grow, and to change. We need a powerful gospel. We need a gospel that can accomplish these things in our lives and in our stories. And that is exactly what we have. I want to say with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Gentile. Thanks be to God.